Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 16. I just remind you that we are going through the book of Genesis and that scripture really does build upon itself. Last week we talked about the importance of waiting. And that's where we start today's sermon. The Christian life is one of waiting. (laughs) You can say that, even in a Presbyterian church. When we look at our lives and do not see God's promises being fulfilled, we fear that waiting is not enough. And we begin to think that we must do something to help the promises along. The fulfillment of the promises somehow depend upon us. And we begin to conceive of ways to accomplish the the blessing through our own strength. We begin to conceive of ways to accomplish the blessing through our own strength. But the blessing is not obtained through human strength. It wasn't for Abram, and it's not for you. Abram is promised land and children. We hear that in Genesis 12 and 15. And initially, in Abram's mind, the promise of land appears to be the more difficult of the two. After all, there's already other people living in that land, right? Um, I've often thought to myself that as I drive down Valdez uh, and I see um, the, Presbyt- the Waldensian Presbyterian Church, I, th- I think that would be a great PCA church right there. But it's, it's not our church. <laughs> I can't just go in and say, hey, would you give me the keys and we're going to plant a church here? And, you know, I don't think they're going to do that. Well, so, you know, Abram, as he looks at the promised land, he's going, uh, other people live here. Um, but as time goes on, it is the promise of children that becomes more difficult. You see, while Abram and Sarah were not spring chickens when God first called them, they were not yet past the age of childbearing. But over the course of the 10 years that they have been traveling, Sarai has continued to age. And all the text does not tell us explicitly, it is very likely that Sarai sees the signs in her body telling her that she can no longer bear children. See, up, up until this time, the possibility of having children may have appeared small, maybe difficult, but it was still there. Now, the possibility of Sarai having children no longer humanly exists. Her body was no longer capable of bearing children. So Abram, in his great statement of believing God's promise, does it when there seemed to be some hope that the promise could be fulfilled. Now that hope's gone. Will God 
fulfill his promises to Abram? Or will Abram have to do something to help those promises along? Will he have to use his own strength and his own ingenuity to make the promise fulfilled? So that's where we are in Genesis 16. So if you would, let's go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. May God bless his holy word. Now the first two verses, verses 1 and 2, we see that clearly the Lord has prevented Sarai from bearing children. She has not been able to bear children. And she comes up to Abram with another plan. And we read that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And as soon as you hear that, your red flags go up. Um, 
Sarai's counsel represents the opposite of waiting on the Lord. That's her problem. It's not just that she's a woman, not that whatever. It's she is giving counsel that is opposite to waiting upon the Lord. But it is important to note out that Sarai's plan was in direct consistency with the, the, the prevailing views in the surrounding culture of that day. This was an acceptable means. If you need an heir and cannot produce an heir with your wife, then it is, it is acceptable to have a surrogate wife be given to you so that you can have an heir. And I would tell you that the fact that Abram and Sarai wait this long is a testimony to their, you know, persistence. You know, he's 86 years old. Uh, he's waiting. And he hasn't done this, chosen this plan yet. It's only after Sarai cannot bear children that they even consider it. I mean, after all, we all know that we're supposed to wait. But how long is enough's enough? Right? I mean, I've been waiting for a long time. And I would say Abram and Sarai have not just been waiting 10 years. I think they've been waiting since the time they got married. We're talking 60 years. Not enough time to wait? How about you? I've been waiting on God to do this, and he hasn't done it. Right? And after a long time, you start feeling justified and like, forget him. Let's take matters into my own hands. Sarai actually says, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Is she right? She's absolutely right. She's right on the money. God is the one who opens the womb, and God is the one who's closed the womb, and he has closed her womb. Now, why? Has God closed her womb? I don't think she has a clue. The question actually is not even answered in our text today, but it's, it's clear from the rest of Scripture that God wanted to create a humanly impossible situation. So there would be no doubt, none whatsoever, that the, the giving of the promised blessing would be a supernatural, I can't believe you were talking about that in the call to worship today, would be a supernatural and miraculous act. In other words, if God doesn't work supernaturally, the promise will not come about. That's the point. And that's what you and I have to learn as well. You cannot achieve God's promised blessing through human effort or your own craftiness. Now, Sarai does not want to, like, step away. She doesn't say, okay, I'm out of the picture, take Hagar, and I'll take second fiddle. No, she wants Sarai to be a surrogate mother. She wants Hagar to bear a child for her. Do you see that? That's, that's, that's her plan. Now, you say, well, what's wrong with her plan? Well, of course, it goes against God's moral law that you're supposed to have one wife. 
So that's, that's important. But I think if that's all you see in this, you're missing the heart of the problem. The primary problem with her plan is that it does not continue to wait upon God to fulfill the promise. It looks to one's own strength to produce the blessing. It is not of faith. And I'm just going to take one, two verses out of Galatians 4. Listen to this. Uh, Paul reflecting on the story of Abraham. This is what he says. For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. That means human effort. The son of the free woman was born through the promise. See how it's, it's the contrast between those two. God could have given children to Abram and Sarai in a way that seemed natural. If, if, if Sarai had had a child 10 years before, it would have just been like, oh, that's the most natural thing in the world. But God prevents her so that she would then learn the lesson that the promise's fulfillment can only come by a supernatural, miraculous working of God. Okay, that's the point. <clears throat> and if God doesn't do this in this story, we wouldn't have Paul musing on it in, the old, in, the, in his point, and we wouldn't have any clue. We would think that the promise comes about by our own, our own efforts. So thank God that he prevented her from having kids. <clears throat> Before, and God's not going to give... Sarah, a child yet. So there's several chapters still to come, right? But before we learn the miraculous giving of a child, we have to catch a glimpse of what would be the inevitable result if the blessing were achieved through human effort. So you've got to understand this. Got to, well, what's wrong with a little bit of human effort? You have to learn that. And, and this is critical to the story. So in verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And when he went to, into Hagar, she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. First off, how ironic is it that Hagar has no trouble whatsoever having a child? I mean, that is, that's like the epitome of irony. Sarai's been trying for years, and Hagar comes along, boom, kids. Right? God could have presented, prevented conception in her. Instead, she easily, I dare say, naturally, is able to conceive. And immediately, as soon as she knows that she has conceived, she looks with contempt on Sarai. Now, there's some other translations. Holman uh, Standard Bible says, she looked down on her mistress. I like that. Young's literal translation says, her mistress was lightly esteemed in her eyes. So here it is, Hagar thinks of herself as being superior to Sarai. 
Now, why? Why? Why, is, why does Hagar think she's better than Sarai? Hagar has been able to do what Sarai has not. It's that simple. I have been able to give Abram a child, and you have not. Now, you may not think of having a child as something to boast about. But when the promised uh, heir, Abram, his own wife, cannot give her a child, and you do, ah, she thinks she's better. Boasting. Boasting. Feelings of superiority are the inevitable results that must occur if the fulfillment of the promises produced the human endeavor and not received by faith alone. Do you understand this? It is, it is, you can't get around it. It's not just, oh, Hagar was kind of, you know, arrogant herself. It, the point of this message is that, in, his, in this text, the point is to say, this is the inevitable result. If, if it results, the promise is given to you because of your own human effort, then you have a reason to boast. How do I know this? I didn't just make this up. Paul explicitly says it in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the point. The attitude of looking down upon others who have not been able to achieve the blessing can be subtle. It can be almost imperceptible but it will be there every time. Every time. Otherwise, why would God have taken such extreme measures to give us the lesson that it is not based on human effort? Now, Hagar decides to keep this child for herself. The plan was to have Hagar give the child to Sarai. Sarai says, had said that I may obtain a child by her. But now that Hagar is pregnant, she wants the child for herself, and obviously this infuriates Sarai. Because it was by her effort by which she was going to obtain the promise. And Sarai is ticked off. She is in her mind, righteously angry. And who does she blame? Always comes back to the man, right? <laughs> it's your fault, Abram. Now, there's no question. Abram agreed to the plan. He engaged in the plan. He bears his own guilt. There's no question that Abram bears his guilt in this story. Was Sarai guiltless? She's the one that came up with a plan. There is absolutely no self-reflection on her part. Instead, she's confident in her own righteousness, and she does something that is almost baffling to me, that you would take the man through whom the holy God of the universe actually spoke to and said, all of the blessings will come through you. And she says, may God judge between you and me. Can you imagine that? 
you're going down, I'm going to get the blessing. Like, she thinks she has more of a right to the promised blessings than Abram? Can you not see that even in her plan, she thinks that her own creativity, her own ingenuity, her own craftiness is what's bringing about the promises? And since it's not working out, it's somebody else's fault. She's not trusting by faith either. And this is a crucial moment in the story. If Abram and Sarai separate... she puts herself in danger of being outside of the promises of God eternally. I mean, what if God actually listened to her at this moment and came down and judged and said, sorry, Sarah, you're out. And even if she did side with Sarah, what if she, God comes down and said, yes, Sarah, you're right, it's all Abram's fault. What would that mean for the promises of God? Abram, you're out. Failed, you, you messed up. Wait a minute, the promises were given to Abram. Abram is in a pickle, humanly speaking. Sticky wicked, as they say in England. So he t- attempts to resolve the dilemma, right? Now it is a difficult thing to find anything, even a glimmer of honorable, praiseworthy, praiseworthiness, and Abram's solution. It is his responsibility to protect Hagar. It is his responsibility to protect Ishmael. And he basically says, do with him what you want. He forsakes her. Abram forsakes the woman that he had just taken as a wife. And then, of course, what does Sarai do? She treats Hagar harshly. She reasserts her dominance over her. She gives Hagar certainly verbal, but but most likely a physical beating. And Hagar flees for her life. Now get this. Abram is supposed to be the one through whom blessing would come to the world. But because he's trying to achieve that blessing through his own strength and power, he is bringing disaster on the world. And as much as from a human perspective, this is a train wreck, from God's perspective, it is a necessary train wreck. Remember, God could have easily removed any of this simply by giving Sarai, a child earlier, and he doesn't. God cares so much. He cares so much that we understand that the promise is never achieved through human effort. If it were, then salvation would be by human effort. Imagine, what a a great gospel to preach to people. Yep, be strong enough, be smart enough, you can get to heaven. Oh, so-and-so didn't make it? I guess they weren't smart enough. I guess they weren't disciplined enough. I guess they didn't exert enough effort. I did, though. 
Oh, and by the way, who gets the glory for salvation then? Well, I do. I'm here because of what I did. I was more committed than Kevin. He didn't make it. I did. Can you imagine what would happen if this was the means by which we get to attain the promises? These are unacceptable ends to God. Man cannot achieve his own salvation. It's not only that he should not, he cannot. Salvation is the work of God's supernatural grace, period. There will be no man boasting over another because he has received the promises of blessing. And God gets all the glory. If God does this any other way, if there's any other solution than the way that we have in chapter 16, the gospel is forever changed. There is no gospel. I mean, we just read in chapter 15 that God takes an oath upon himself. He's the one who goes between the, the, the animals that have been severed, and he says, I am going to fulfill the promise, me and me alone. All that's null and void if, this, if Hagar can have the promise. Abram sides with Sarai. It's not a good choice, but it's an important one. So in the big picture, the big picture is so important that Abram sides with Sarai. But what does that mean for Hagar? Is she trampled underfoot so that we can learn a lesson about grace? Is she collateral damage in the story? Is God that harsh? That he doesn't care about her? Does God have any true love for Hagar? In fact, in this story, I know that Hagar's not sinless, but in, in, in comparison, if I'm going to compare, I think Sarah's comes out far worse than Hagar does. She has been used and abused by her master. She is running for her life. She is alone, defenseless, in a cruel and dangerous world. She's trying to get back to Egypt, but she's got a long way to go. And you have to understand, even if she's able to get back to Egypt and get some sort of protection in her own homeland, she is forever separated from the gospel. You see, because Hagar is not just running from Sarai and Abram. She is running from Sarai and Abram's God. How often has this scenario been lived out in history? You know, those Christians hurt me. Those Christians treated me poorly. So guess what I'm going to do? I don't want anything to do with the Christian God. That's where Hagar is right now. And so here's the question. How does the Christian God feel about the people who have been hurt by Christians? 
Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. God finds Hagar. If God doesn't come to her, she will either die in the wilderness or she will make it back to Egypt. Either way, she will be separate from God and lost to the promises of God. And so he says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. He's actually, this is your name. You are joined to Sarai. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Sounds like, you know, Adam and Eve, right? God wants Hagar to understand her situation. Do you realize you are leaving the household of the promised one to go away from that? And Hagar's response is really refreshing. I I love Hagar in this story. Um, I'm running from Sarai. I'm trying to get away from her. Just an honest, refreshing to the point. She doesn't try to pull the wool over God's eyes like, yeah, I'm trying to get out of Dodge. And then he says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Are you kidding me? This command makes no sense except in terms of the covenant blessing. If Abram and Sarai are just two people traveling through life and God is going to give a direct blessing to Hagar, then forget it. But if Hagar is blessed through Abram, she needs to go back. This goes against every natural tendency there possibly is. She has been treated harshly by Sarai. She thinks herself better than Sarai. And God says, no, 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 humble yourself. He's he's confronting in her. The promise is not gained through your effort. Go back. Trust me. Trust me, and you will be blessed. Hagar is submitting, and the only way that she can do this, I believe, is because she believes God's word. She's trusting in the promises. She's not going to go back and think that she's better than Sarai anymore. She's going to have to submit to Sarai. So God is like breaking pride in her own heart. And all she has, just like Abram had before, trust the bare word of God. Trust the promise and you will be blessed. God is not upset with Hagar. There's nothing wrong with the child that she bears. But there's one thing that she has to understand. One lesson that she's got to get. Your son is not the promised son. So she says, God says to Hagar incredible things. He gives her a promise that is almost, I mean, if you stopped in verse 10, you'd almost think that the promise is, is equal to Abram's. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. If, you had, if God had stopped there, you would think, well, maybe God's going to create two peoples, Right? One for Sarai, one for Hagar, two of his peoples. God has two peoples in the world. Nope. Verse 11 is so critical. Behold, you are pregnant, shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. You have a son because God cares about you. That's why Ishmael means God will hear. 
And it's not just that he will hear, but he will hear with concern, with compassion, with love. He'll do something about the affliction that she is facing. But then, in verse 12, you go, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. You're like, that doesn't sound like blessing. And I've always heard this verse as if it's just a cut on Ishmael's character. And I'm not like discounting that entirely because Ishmael does kind of grow up to be a rough man. Okay, so maybe there's some connection with that. But I think the best way to understand this verse is in contrast to the promise given to Abram and his promised son. So just take this, hear the contrast. Abram will be the source of blessing to the world. Abram will dwell securely in the promised land. He'll have a home. Abram will, uh, his offspring will inherit the promised blessing. He'll be a blessing. His offspring will be a blessing. Things will be good. That's the promise to him. Contrast that with Ishmael. He'll fight against his kinmen. He'll wander around. He will not be a blessing to the world. So what is God trying to communicate to Hagar? Your son, he's not the promised one. (laughs) He is not it. God is determined to fulfill his promises through a supernatural son. Now here's the key. God is not telling Hagar that she and Ishmael cannot partake of that blessing. See, he's not just casting them off. He's just telling them that they have to place their faith in God's promised blessing, not in the fruit of their own work. And I think Hagar gets this, because otherwise, why would she go back? She believes God's promise for her. And then in verse 13, she says, you are the God of seeing. This is one of the few times in history, in the scriptures, that a human actually gives a title to God. Usually God says, this is who I am, this is my name, you guys. This is a human giving the title. Truly I've seen him who looks after me. She's happy as all get out. Hagar recognizes, here's the key, God can give her blessing without being the source of the blessing. I'm not the source, but I'm going to be blessed. She can receive God's blessing without feeling superior over others. That's the real issue. And so they make a well there and they name it, right? El Roi, the one who sees the afflicted. And I think that's a great thing to learn. Anybody that's been hurt by Christians, don't run from the Christian God. Go to the God who sees that you've been hurt by God's people. Now, Ishmael grows up under the blessing given to Abram. It is still a question whether Abram, I mean Ishmael will come to the faith that he needs to have. Right? He's not even born yet. So here's the the lessons in all this. Number one, 
The promised blessing will not be fulfilled by human strength. It was the same thing is true for Abram, it's true for us. God went to great lengths to teach us this, this lesson, and he will go to great lengths to teach you that lesson. See, God prevented Sarai from having a child. But how often does God frustrate our plans of achieving the promised blessing? I trusted in Christ, and my, my life hasn't turned out the way that I thought it was going to turn out. God does often frustrate us, does he not? I raised my kids in a godly way. Why are they not walking with God? I did what I was supposed to do. The promised blessing will not be fulfilled by human strength. Period. Now, next point. It is natural when we do not see the promises being fulfilled to want to make them happen in our own strength. You and I all do it. The Christian life involves effort. But how much of our effort is self-effort and in the biblical lingo of the flesh? So distinguishing between what I would call self-effort and what is what I would call faith-driven effort is not easy. And I would tell you that often you don't know it until the fruit comes out. So self-effort always results in looking down on others. Well, they made their bed. They didn't read the word. They didn't read the word. It's their fault. I'm reading the word. I'm taking time to pray. Right? Self-effort, always. Subtle. You wouldn't even say it. You wouldn't even admit it out. But you will look down upon others. And I'm telling you, those who are struggling know when Christians look down on them. Oh, you think you got it all together. You Christians think you have it all together. Sometimes that's just their perception, but sometimes it is us looking down upon them. Can you be progressing in the Christian life and growing in holiness and not disdain those who are behind you? Can you? Because if you can't, there's something that you have been believing in. Your own self-effort has got you where you are today. God, third point, God does not allow any room for boasting. The blessing is achieved by faith in the promise, period. And I would tell you that this passage also destroys the idea that the blessings are dependent on the perfection of my faith. So can anyone say that Abram's faith in this chapter is perfect? Does it somehow lose him the blessing? Sorry, Abram, I was going to give all the blessing to you, but your faith wasn't perfect, so now you get a portion of the blessing. Oh, we do that as Christians. Man, if you can, Barry, if you can just have perfect faith, then the blessing will be yours. False. God takes Abram's failures 
He takes the weakness of his faith and he uses them to drive their faith forward. Doesn't nullify faith, but he uses all this to help him grow and understand that it's all in Christ and all I'm trusting in his promises. It's refreshing to look back as you get older and see all the times where you didn't perfectly trust God and to go, I'm glad it didn't depend on me. If you partake of the blessings of redemption and you are striving in faith to receive them, then you the results will be humility and thankfulness, not boasting. Are these not the points that are explicitly made clear with the coming of Jesus Christ? Is it not true that it is his righteousness alone that purchases for you the promised blessing? Is it not true that the promised blessing is kept securely in heaven for you? Is it not also true that he is the author and perfecter of your faith? Are we not called to humbly submit our hearts to him and wait upon him to fulfill his promises in us? And so I'm going to change this from from waiting on God for a kid or waiting on God for heaven to put it in what I find is the most difficult place for me to trust God, and that is my own sanctification. God has promised to me absolute freedom from all sin. This up here. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. That's the supernatural thing that Clark's been talking about earlier. He has said he will cleanse your heart. He will remove your heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. He'll put his spirit in you and you will love him and obey him all the time. All of his rules. Well, how does that work when you continue to struggle against sin? Isn't that frustrating sometimes? And what do you do? Do you keep believing the promise? Do you continue to wait? Do you lay lay on to him and say, God, please fulfill your promises in me? Or do you come up with your own plans? For your sanctification. Twelve ways that you can do this. Fourteen ways you can do that. You can overcome this. Here's what you got to figure out. Do this and you'll have it all figured out. And somehow your conniving has figured it out. And you look at people who haven't figured it out. And you go, if they would only did what I did. See that attitude just, God hates it. God is warning you and I to not trust in man-made solution. Our confidence is to be fixed in Christ. Colossians 2.23 These people, these people who don't rely on Christ alone, have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Progress in sanctification is always by the supernatural work of God. You can't bring about your own transformation. If you could, and I'm telling you, you want to, then you could look down on everybody else. So here's the thing. Are you clinging to Jesus today? 
Are you saying, I believe that all of the promises of blessing are found in Jesus Christ, including the freedom that I have over my sin? Am I clinging to Christ? Yes, I will be striving. I'll try to read my Bible. I will try to pray. I'll come to church. All these kind of things I will do, but I am not trusting in them. I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone. You see, don't give up. Your confidence in the promise that is yours in Jesus Christ. He will richly reward you. We're going to sing a song here in just a second. Ken, you can come on up. Only trust him is the name of it. And the third line, he says, yes, Jesus is the truth. This is 675. You can turn there. Yes, Jesus is the truth. The way that leads you into rest. Believe in him without delay. And you are fully blessed. Fully. Trust in Christ alone. And all the blessings are yours in him. He will drive out your sin. He will help you put sin to death. Just because you don't see it in its fullness yet, keep trusting him. Don't go anywhere else. Continue to cling to Jesus Christ. He will help you, and he will win the victory in your life. Amen. Well, since you're already there, let's uh, go ahead and rise and...